Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. Good morning, Harvest. Are you guys glad to be here? All right. I'm very glad to be here today. This morning has already been, for me personally, a very encouraging morning. Uh, that's weird to say when, when it feels like service is just getting started, but I've had a couple of things happen this morning that already um, have me fired up and are, are ways that God has shown me he's real, he's paying attention. I wanted to share with you this morning before I launch into the message or anything else. Um, back in September 2021, uh, there, was, there was a lot of buzz in the air about um, incidents of church abuse all over the country in some, in some prominent churches that were very close to us. And so the elders of the church realized that we cannot wait until something happens. We certainly hope nothing ever happens, but we can't wait until a crisis happens to suddenly figure out what do we do in response to this. So back in September 2021, we began working on a reporting policy that would guide our church members and leadership in how to handle an issue where there was a, a, an allegation of wrong conduct, of moral failure, and how we would guide our church through that difficult, painful process. During that process of study and preparation, we got connected to a ministry called Grace. And Grace Ministries... Basically, they exist to help churches be resourced and guided through these kinds of incidents. That's all they do. And so they, they coached us through some of that. And they already had a reporting policy that was finished, which we use as a template to develop our own. We presented that in September of 2022, a year after we began developing it, at a town hall meeting and showed it to all of you. A couple months after that, we realized that we, we can't just have a reporting policy for what to do if something happens, but we also wanted to have a protection policy that would define and guide our behavior, especially among those who are most vulnerable among us. And so we began working on a protection policy. There's a, a very large church in our area that was highly motivated to develop these policies themselves. And when we reached out to them, they were very gracious and shared all their work with us. And so um, with that great resource in hand, we began to develop our own protection policy. And it is a policy that helps us understand what, what defines right conduct and wrong conduct in our church. What will trigger action to be taken so that we have a guideline and we're able to detect this is not an okay thing to happen at our church? It, it, I think it, it does provide a measure of protection for those who don't have much power or are vulnerable among us. I'm happy to announce on behalf of the safeguarding team, which was formed to help steward this process, the Tove group, as well as the elders, that we have now a finished product a version of the uh, protection policy that has the reporting policy wrapped into it, and we're ready to release that to everyone this week. Uh, you will receive an email with a link to that. We encourage you to read it because having it doesn't mystically confer any protection. The people of our church have to be familiar with what this says and see these ideas trickle down into the way we choose to live with one another. It's a long document. I'm not going to lie. It took me a while to get through it. It's like 50 pages. But it is really detailed. We're going to work on an executive summary so that those of you who like Cliff's Notes can have an option there. But it's also a, a resource for us to turn to when we have questions about what to do. 
We are very detailed in how to govern, especially people who work with children, minors, and the vulnerable. And it's meant to be a living document. It's not a set-in-stone thing. It's our first draft. We really believe it's a good working draft, but it provides a starting point for a conversation among us. As you read it, if things occur to you that you want to give feedback and suggestions, we're really open to hearing from you. Look out for that email this week, and please brew a cup of coffee, set aside an hour or six, and... uh, Take a look at that thing. I, I think you won't be sorry. You'll, I hope that it encourages you that we are after um, best practices when it comes to the things that could hurt others in the church. I want to move on to our piece of good news, and I'm still kind of floating on air from what I had to experience yesterday. Uh, thank you to so many of you who gave and who came out. We had over 70 volunteers across two shifts who came out to the Muir Winter Wonderland holiday mart yesterday at John Weir School. I don't know if we have some pictures from that event, but we got to serve 178 families yesterday, and we got to meet so many people from the community. It was really encouraging to have a lot of people from the village. We've been calling them the village people all week, but now I can't get the YMCA song out of my head. People from the village um, who were joining with us, and we, we really felt like this was a community effort. So many from this congregation didn't just give and donate, but you were there with us to see what a joy it is to give dignity to people who love their children, just want to provide something. And it was great that these folks were able to pay for those gifts with their own money, deeply discounted, but it wasn't like they just received something for free. They gave their kids gifts, and we helped make that happen. And I think that was a beautiful expression of the kindness and love of God. So thank you to all of you who are there. We're just, can we just give a, a clap to God for what he did yesterday? It was such an encouraging event. I, I'm especially thankful for those who dressed up in elves costumes and stuff like that. I, I, that would have driven me nuts. Thank you for going through that for the Lord. Another piece of good news is that as we are moving towards women in eldership and we have some candidates that have been invited, we are not ready to give you updates yet because we want to give them space to prayerfully consider that invitation. But part of what we want to do as we make the shift to an egalitarian position is we want to normalize women taking the pulpit. And next Sunday, we're going to have in the first time in in the history of our church, a woman pastor come and take the pulpit and speak to us from the word of God. Her name is Juliet Liu. And she is one of the, the senior pastors at Life on the Vine Church in Long Grove. Uh, she's an incredible woman, an incredible leader. We're looking forward to hearing her bring the word of God next Sunday. Please be sure to join us for that and bring your friends. I think it's going to be a wonderful service. With that, I want to invite Josie Mo to come forward and read the passage for our message this morning. Thanks, Josie. Today's passage is from Mark 9, verses 14 to 29. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. 
Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciple asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. This is the word of God. Thanks, Josie. This morning, the message is entitled Prayer Power. I don't know if you've seen these videos on social media. They're hilarious to me. I, I, I was watching like 10 in a row yesterday of people who do a prank on someone else that they put diesel gas in a gas car. The hysterical ones are the teenagers who go, Dad, I don't know what's wrong with the car, but I filled it up. It was so expensive, first of all. I tried to put the best gas in. It was the green one. And you could hear the dad trying really hard not to destroy their child's heart, but they can't believe what's... And it's so funny to me because you're... It, by the way, how many of you know you're not supposed to do that? Don't ever put diesel gas in your car. These days, it's more expensive, so there's no temptation. But there was a time when diesel gas was way cheaper, and I was like, can you put that in? I find out you can't. Don't do it. It'll seize up your... Here's what you learn from that. A full tank of gas does not mean you're ready to roll. The type of fuel matters. In Ephesians 6.10, as Paul is kicking off his teaching on spiritual warfare, take note of how he begins. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's a really strange passage for rational, science-oriented, modern people to hear today. But what's interesting, if you believe in Scripture, is that the New Testament routinely talks about these things like they're just a matter of course. Jesus doesn't ever preface by saying, or Paul doesn't ever preface by saying, you're going to hear something weird now, this is spooky. He just talks about it like this is just part of the world we live in, that there are evil spirits and demons and, and these powers that hold people captive. He says, if you're going to engage in that fight, you can't just do it with what you have in your hands. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Why? Because our fight isn't against the things you think it's against. If our fight was against flesh and blood, then the resources we have, like money, intelligence, logic, persuasion, it would all be good enough. We could get a lot of things done with human resources if our battles were primarily in the flesh and blood realm. But he says that our biggest battles, the fights that get us in the end, are not taking place in the world of flesh. They're taking place in a deeper realm. And that's true because you may be engaged in a conflict with a flesh and blood human being, but the response, the inability to forgive or to forget or to move on, those deeper things are a battle that aren't just about what that person did or what they're doing. It's about something else that's also going on in you and me. 
We're not just talking about triggers. We're talking about an incapacity that feels larger than my ability to change. And what Paul is saying is in those battles, in things like addiction where you, no matter how much you loathe yourself for being this weak, I can't change it. I can't kick it. When you're the grips of something like that, spiritually, supernaturally powerful, oppressive, you're not going to be able to fight that fight with flesh and blood resources that have gotten you through most of life. And then at the end of that passage on spiritual warfare, after he describes the spiritual armor, he closes with this, which is very interesting, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. His message is simple. There is a kind of power we are going to need to fight the real fights that define human life. Those fights are not in flesh and blood. They're in a deeper realm. And if we're going to fight them, the, the way we access that power is through prayer. There is no other means. You're going to need a source of power. And I, I learned in physics class, power is the ability to do work, right? Power is how work gets done in the physical universe. In the spiritual realm, it's no different. There are things that have to be moved and changed and accomplished, and the power comes only through prayer. The best way for me to illustrate this principle, I think, is to take a chapter out of Jesus' own life and ministry in Mark chapter 9, which Josie read for us. It's a familiar passage for many who grew up in the church. We've heard this, especially that last verse, this kind comes, uh, comes out only by prayer. We've heard that taught, maybe um, misinterpreted at times. I hope to unpack that passage for you in a way that will be compelling and true. Now, this, just before this episode, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John, his innermost circle of three, his closest disciples. They'd gone up to a mountain, and he had taken off the mask and revealed to them a glimpse of his true glory. We call it the transfiguration, where he shone like the sun, and for a moment, this guy who they knew to be their older brother, their teacher, their faithful friend, suddenly revealed to them, I'm more than those things. I'm not who you think I am. I am the living God himself. And as they saw his glory, they were deeply moved. They were, they were in themselves transfigured through that experience. And they were coming down filled with wonder and awe. And here the, the four of them come. And as they rejoin the rest of their crew, what they come upon is a scene where the other disciples who didn't go up to the mountain were engaged in a, in a real big argument with a crowd of people. And so it says, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, what happens? They were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What a different response between their response to Jesus' disciples and the response to Jesus himself. They see Jesus and they run to him. They see the disciples, they start arguing with them. And so Jesus comes upon the scene and goes, all right, uh, first of all, before I greet all of you, what are you guys arguing about? What's going on here? Isn't that what we always ask when we walk into a scene? Or you walk into a room and you, you're just like, duh, 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 and you feel it. Something's going on in this room. There's some drama happening here. There's tension. And the first question we ask is, what's going on? What are you guys arguing about? Now, whenever you ask your kids that and they don't answer, they've done something bad. You're like, what's going on? 
Uh, which one of you? That's exactly what happens here. The disciples don't answer the question. What are you guys arguing? He's, he's asking his guys, not the crowd. But no one speaks. And then a man in the crowd answers. Well, if, if your guys are not going to tell you, I'm going to tell you. And here's what he says. Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Now think about that just for a minute. Because if you suddenly lose the ability to talk, what does that do to your life? It cuts you off from everybody. It produces social isolation. It makes you unable to express the most meaningful parts of who you are. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So we're talking about convulsions. This looks a lot like epilepsy even. And the man says to Jesus, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't. So that's what sparked the argument. Now, what's interesting is the man says to Jesus, I brought you, my son. The curious thing is Jesus hadn't been around. He'd been up on the mountain transfiguring himself with his three closest friends. And what he means is, here's the way it worked in the ancient world. When you have a teacher or a leader, to bring someone to his people is the same as bringing them to him. I think that's a fair assumption that the world makes. That when they bring their brokenness, their need, their plight to the church, to the people of God, it's the earthly equivalent of bringing them to God himself. That's, that's why we're told in scripture that we are not just the club that follows God or the building that houses God. We are the body of Christ. For people to approach the church carrying a, a desperate need, for them it's the earthly equivalent of bringing that desperate need to Jesus himself. And I don't think that's an inappropriate assumption for people to make. If you were hurting and you saw a cross on the building, a church that said Jesus saves, and there was a, a sort of implied promise of hope and help there, and you walked in, wouldn't you expect to receive from the people in that building the kind of welcome and graciousness you would expect from God as you understand him? And so this man brought his most desperate need to those men who most closely followed Jesus because he was desperate. He had been carrying this burden for a really long time. And he had a fair and reasonable expectation that these men could drive out the demons, not just because they were associated with Jesus, but a couple chapters earlier, as Jesus sends all his followers out on an itinerant ministry trip, it says in Matthew or in Mark chapter 7, 13, that they drove out many demons and they healed many sick. It isn't like they had never done this before. Precedent had already been established that the men who followed Jesus were able to heal in the same way that Jesus did. So he brought this desperate need to this man, Jesus, and his followers and thought, surely, if I bring him here, there will be relief. Now, people may come to the church presenting real-world needs and problems, but underneath all those things, if all those needs get met, there's still this aching, unanswered question deep down, the real question that grips every human life, pain notwithstanding. Is this question, is God real? Is there really a God? I can't explain why 2,000 years later, we still have in high school cafeterias this organization devoted to him 
that still organizes and gathers like this and believes with all our hearts, that's kind of inexplicable if you think about it. And the question underneath it all is, is this the most long-lasting scheme in the history of humanity, or is there a God who is real? Am I sitting here thinking I'm just hearing persuasion, logic, talking, teaching? Am I just witnessing human kindness and generosity, or under all of this, and this is the aching question of the human soul, isn't it? Is there really more? Every last one of us is going to face the threshold of death. We're going to pass from this life into another thing, either oblivion, nothingness, or something more. And the question that aches at us, that nags at us in the back of our minds is, is there really more than this? Is there really a God who has power, who cares about us, who sees us, who changes things, who does what we cannot do? Or are we just deluding ourselves in this ongoing conspiracy that we contribute to? What our church participated yesterday at Muir, that, that was such a beautiful expression of kindness and generosity and the love of God. I don't want that to ever stop. We need to keep doing those things because they are tangible, flesh and blood reminders of the way that God loves people. But every family that came through that market who does not know Jesus has a deeper need than to put Christmas gifts under the tree for their children. What people need more than affordable gifts or human kindness is an experience of God so real they can no longer ever deny that their faith is not misplaced. A a God so real that they cannot unknow it anymore. I can tell you that I'm not a Christian today just because I studied a lot of things with airtight arguments in a good school. That's not why I'm a Christian today. I'm a Christian today because I've also had experiences in this real world of a God so real and so inexplicable, I cannot unexperience those things. I cannot unremember those things. I cannot unsee and unknow what I, with my own mind, my own eyes, have experienced of this God. The theology, the doctrine matters greatly. I'm grateful that he has steered me towards truth. But the truth that has really kept me is that I've had encounters with the living God that are so real, I can never get to a place in my life where I go, I don't think that's real. I can never do that again. There are certain things so truly real that even when you're discouraged and in pain, you can't pretend those things didn't happen. I believe that that is the crying need of all of us. Is there something real to all of this? A church that does what only human beings can do will ultimately prove to be a disappointment to the world around it because here's the truth, okay? Though those expressions of kindness and generosity are beautiful, kindness, generosity, community, compassion, all those things are also available outside the church. They're on offer everywhere. You can go to a bar and find better community than the church sometimes. You can go to a Goodwill store. You can go to all kinds of places and find kindness and generosity. Apart from the real experiences of the undeniable power of God himself, the church will find itself spending a lot of time 
and a lot of energy arguing with people. It's where we are, I think, as a church in general in our world. We spend so much time arguing because it's really easy to argue with a powerless church that makes powerful claims. Some of our claims as Christians to the world are so huge, so larger than life. There's eternity beyond this life. There's all, and we're making these huge claims. And the question is, that's great. You make huge claims. Is there anything real behind it? You say people change, that there's forgiveness of sins, that there's transformation, there's a before and after. Can we see it? And on the best day of our lives, we can only offer the church in ourselves a slightly more refined reflection of themselves. On the best day of our lives, my life itself is not the ultimate argument or proof for the existence of God, no matter how much I might change. The ultimate proof is that each person must have an encounter with the living God that is indelible, undeniable, that says to their soul, I have actually beheld. I've been in the presence of the maker of the universe the one who created me and created all things. That is much harder to argue with. Sometimes, even through the experiences of others, we can be deeply moved. But what we need to witness more and more is not just persuasion, but power. Real power that we cannot explain by human means. I'm going to start giving principle and tell you a a few stories because I think stories can be powerful teachers. Sometimes we see or experience the power of God, the things that are impossible for the human heart. In 2011, some of you maybe have been around long enough to remember this, I went to Uganda in 2011 to teach at a pastor's conference in Kampala. As I was moving from one session to the next, someone ran up to me and introduced me to two men who changed my life forever. These two pastors had walked to Uganda from the neighboring nation of Rwanda. How many of you remember the news about the Rwandans in the 90s? And two different tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis, terrible tribal conflict, genocide, hundreds of thousands slaughtered in those troubles. And during the height of that conflict, neither of these men were Christians, but they were neighbors, and the one man murdered the wife of the other man. And he did it in a, in a really, really hard way. And I, I heard the details of the story, and it just crushed me. And then I asked, how is it that you are here together today? And they said, shortly after all the troubles ended, the Lord was gracious and saved both of us independently. And as the gospel began to transform us, both of us felt a need. I had a need to be forgiven And the other guy said, I had a need to forgive that man. Neither had any idea where the other person was spiritually or emotionally, but they sought each other out when they realized that in Christ they had both received pardon. It deeply affected them. And the one man was able to forgive the other, and they began to labor side by side in their village as pastors. And today they are partners in ministry. I can never forget these two men. And in their story, I see 
proof of the existence and power of God. You cannot hear that story and just go, wow, people can be really forgiving. No human being is that forgiving. None. It is a thing impossible for the human heart to do. Some of the greatest miracles in the world are not levitation or supernatural healing or the raising of the dead. It is the ability for one human being to forgive another. This is nearly impossible when the pain and the hurt is deep enough. And every time I struggle to to forgive someone else, God reminds me of these two men and the power of the gospel and the power of the living God to do what feels impossible to me in my human heart. Maybe that's true for you too. That what you need to remember is that there is a power bigger than what persuasion can accomplish. Sometimes that power is revealed in something that's impossible for science. Just curious, if you're not comfortable, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have witnessed something that you can't explain by natural means? Something supernatural. I have multiple times. I am a trained scientist. I resisted. I remember the one year I, somebody was doing the, these prayers where you're like, it's slain by the spirit. I'm like, what is that? And I was like, I dare you to do anything. And the guy came, put, waved his hand over me. And I was like, why am I falling backwards? And my last thought was, I hope someone catches me. I just remember experiences like that, that where I can't, it wasn't like persuasion or hypnosis. Something undeniably real happened in my flesh and and blood. Around 15 years ago, when our church was regularly going to Tuba City, um, they don't invite me often to do children's ministry because I've been told I scare children. So I was doing adult visitation. I and a partner on our team were going to the adult homes in the village and in the city and basically just ministering to people and their needs. And we're praying for this one woman who had shoulder pain, and she said it's related to a fight she'd gotten into the year before because a woman had accused her of stealing a recipe, and when they fought over it, the woman hit her. And she said, ever since then, I can't really move this arm well. Would you pray for it? So my hand is on her shoulder. I'm praying, and as I'm praying, I just felt a strong conviction. Before I pray for your healing, could I pray that God would give you the supernatural ability to forgive that woman and release her for what she did to you. And she, I could hear her. She goes, all right. And she began to pray out loud for the forgiveness of this woman. And as she was praying, I felt, and I, this is not an everyday thing. Don't, don't misunderstand. This is like very rare occurrences for me. But as I'm, I'm listening to her pray, I had this very strong impression, move your hand to the back of her neck. Huh. So I did it. <laughs> And as soon as I touched the back of her neck, she started shaking like this. I was like, ah! (laughs) And I, I, you know, that's not normal stuff, okay? I just, I I don't know what was going on, but I took my hand off. I thought maybe I triggered a reaction. I looked at her face, and what I saw scared me like crazy. She had dark black blood just pouring out of her nose down the front of her face, and she was smiling like this huge grin. And I was like, what's happening? (laughs) She said, just a minute. She ran to her bathroom washed it all off, changed clothing, came back out, and she said, let me tell you what just happened. As I was praying to forgive that woman, I felt this ability that didn't come for me to let her go. I've been so angry at her. 
First for the accusation, because I didn't steal her recipe, and then for her to hit me over. But then here's the weird thing. She didn't hit me on the shoulder. I hurt that arm trying to hit her. (laughs) She hit me with a frying pan on the back of the neck at the exact spot where you touched. And it's been kind of immobile and in pain ever since then, but I've just accepted that that pain is permanent. So I didn't even bother to ask you to pray for it. So when you put your hand on that very spot, it freaked me out. And then the minute you touched it, I felt a snap inside like something got released. And then this bad, and she just called it bad blood. This bad blood just started pouring out of my nose. It was like all the bad stuff was coming out. And the reason I was smiling is because I never imagined I'd be free of this pain. And in a second, God freed me. And the the experience for her was of unbridled joy and gratitude. I know that feeling personally. I have experienced two personal supernatural healings myself where my own body was repaired through nothing more than prayer. If you come over to my house for dinner and ask me, I'll tell you those stories, but I can't take any more pulpit time or we'll never get home. But what I can testify to is that when God does what only God can do, if someone pays for my hospital bill, I'm full of thanksgiving. I marvel at the generosity of people. But when God does things like this that only God can do, that people cannot be responsible for, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, and you realize we're not just among nice people. We're among a real, living, powerful God. There is power in the church that cannot be explained by the things people do. And don't you have a yearning to see and experience to know that power just a few times before you exit this earth? It's possible. Everything in my rational training tells me to reject that as foolish, that there's a real explanation for everything I've experienced. But I can tell you as I've diced it and and played it out in my mind over and over, I cannot explain it any other way. It always reminds me of that lame man healed by Peter in Acts chapter 3, how he jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts. And this is the universal reaction for everyone who has been touched by the healing power of God. He was walking and jumping and praising God. You know that leprechaun leap where you jump up and you, I'm not going to hurt myself and do it, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. You just, you can't control it. You're literally jumping for joy. I truly am convinced that every person needs to experience some measure of the undeniable true power and presence of the living God. It is that experience that will forever shape your conviction that the words I believe are true, and they reveal a God who is not just thoughts and ideas, but he's a real being. Jesus then calls the the, the boy to himself. But what I love about Jesus, I mean, so often I'm reading the gospel and I think, I really like Jesus. He he teaches me how to be a a, a good person. Like he's, it's just the way he handles things. It's just so good. And I love that before he heals this young boy, he takes a moment to enter into this family story. This is not a necessary question for the healing. But he just asks, how long has he been like this? That's a very human question. 
it provides superfluous information because he's going to heal them regardless of how long. But he wants to enter their story because what he's trying to gauge is, how long have you carried this? What has this suffering done to you and your family? And the man responds, he's been like this since he was a little, little itty-bitty thing. Really what he's saying is for most of this boy's life, this has been his life. Tormented by the Spirit, not just psychologically, but physically. He can't talk. He's cut off from everyone in the village. And on top of that, I don't have a son. I haven't been able to talk to him, joke with him, teach him anything. All his life, it's been like this. And I've carried the weight of it. And as his father, I feel totally helpless and hopeless because nothing I've tried has worked. I'm at my wits end. I've just come to live with this and it's broken me. He still desperately wants help. He desperately wants to believe that help is possible, that something can be done. But when you've carried pain and suffering and loss for a very long time, something inside of you begins to wither. The ability to hope, to be optimistic, to to have faith, it starts to shrink because you've lived with it for so long. It just wears you down. Suffering feeds our doubts, and it starves our faith. That's just what suffering does. So when Jesus, he says, if you can do anything, please take pity on us and help us. Such a heartfelt, honest thing to ask. If you can do anything for us, isn't that the way you would ask? It's not like, heal him now. You would say, if you can do anything. He's being polite, but he's hedging his bets. Because he's hoped before, and nothing's happened. And Jesus says, if you can. Now, I read that for years as a sarcastic rebuke. If you can. Boy, do you have any idea who I am? If you can. I can, all right? I can. That's how I I read it for years. I don't read it that way anymore. I don't see that in the text at all. I think he is as much talking to his disciples as anyone because this man had finally come to the true source of power. You don't go to people for divine power. And I think he's as much talking to his disciples saying, do you also share this man's doubt about the power of God? Because now you are finally standing in front of the one being who can actually do something for you. And Jesus says to the man, listen, brother, I know how long you've carried this. Everything is now possible for the one who believes. Not because belief itself makes things real, but because you have brought that belief to the one being who can do something to bear the weight of your hope. When people who aren't people of faith say, I believe, believe what? Just for an outcome? Do do we believe in some quantum way that just wishing for things creates change in the universe? I don't believe that. I don't have that much faith to believe that just wishing for something changes the physical universe. And everything else I've experienced, it takes agency and cause to change things. I don't believe that wanting something real bad makes it happen. And I've wanted some things real bad. When I was a teenager, I wanted above anything else to be taller. You have no idea how much that mattered to me. And I would lay upside down on monkey bars, hold weights, and I just... I tried so hard to be taller. 
And I'm living proof that wanting something real bad does not make it happen. In my head, I'm 6'4". In my desire, I'm 6'4". In real life, I've lost an inch and a half of height since high school. I believe that it's not our belief that makes things real, but it's that we finally have encountered the one who can carry the weight of our belief and has real power to do something for us. This man's response is one of the most beautiful and honest expressions of faith I've ever, I've ever read. He says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's not a contradiction. Here's what he's saying. Deep in my heart, above everything else, there's still a nugget, a kernel inside of me that says, this change is possible. I can have my son again. He can be different. He can be made well. I believe that somewhere deep down inside, but that flame is flickering. It's so small now, but I truly believe something is possible. But I'm really struggling because years of being beaten down and carrying this weight have made me stop believing so much. Will you do something to help me? Because I believe, I want to believe, but I also have unbelief. And what is the cure for unbelief and doubt? Well, in the church, we always tell people, well, it's just faith. If nothing is happening, just believe harder. That's the only answer I have for you. Just have more faith. I don't, listen, faith is important. We should strive to believe the truths of God. But the ultimate cure for, faith, for, for unbelief is not faith, it's power. Do you know what cures this man's unbelief? Is his son being healed. Not just being told, keep on keeping on. Come on. Just keep believing it'll happen. You know what the ultimate cure for his unbelief would be to know that at some point, something inexplicably real and powerful happened in this world through the agency of God. There's no guarantees that that's the way God will work in this case, but that would be ultimately what he's asking for is not just give me more ability to hang on, but he's saying, please help me because I want to believe, but I need something real to believe in. Stop telling me to just keep believing. Give me something to believe. An experience I could hold on to forever so that the next time I'm in a place of doubt, I will remember that you were real in my life that you're not just a figment of our imagination, an idea. You are real. So he, he heals this young boy. The family leaves. And Jesus is so cool. He waits until they're in private to debrief. I love that that's how he is because he's retaining his disciples' dignity. He's like, oh, I got stuff to say to you all, but let's wait till everyone's gone because I don't want to embarrass you publicly. And then they bring it up first like, listen, teacher, we couldn't do anything. Why didn't it work this time? Because just a couple chapters earlier, they had been casting out demons left and right. Be out, be gone, get out of here. And the demons were fleeing. It even says in Luke 10 that they came back giddy, telling Jesus, it's so weird, it's crazy, the demons were fleeing in your name. We were like, demon, get out. They're like, we're out of here. And they were so excited by this experience, like, what was that? It was so fun, it was so cool. They had been doing this all over Judea. And so they come to him with a genuine question, what happened this time? 
Why didn't it work? We did exactly what we did in the Judean villages. But the, the, the demon looked at us and was like, whatever. You know, I think demons in the face of powerless people are like teenagers. Whatever. Get out of him. All right, whatever. Here's a problem, I think. Is that when you have lots of previous experience, you start to trust what happened in the past. You start to trust your process more than God's power. Because I know what to do in this situation. I've had times, for example, when I really prayed hard for someone and we began to do a counseling session and the Lord led us to an insight that unlocked something inside their heart and they changed permanently. I can't take credit for that. That wasn't an idea I had. Something just comes to me in the middle of the conversation and you could tell when that moment comes because they freeze. They're like, don't stop talking for a minute. I think I can leave now because they've heard the thing from God which has unlocked the tension inside of them. What happens then is the next time I'm in a similar scenario with someone making the same kind of complaint, I'm like, oh, I remember what happened last time, and I just go through the script. My dad tells me, in a sense, that's how most of medicine is. It's not every time going, wow, what do I do? It's like, I've seen this before. There's pattern recognition. I know exactly what to do for this, and I know exactly what to do for that. That's why anomalies throw everyone off. Like, this is a new disease. I don't know what to do here. When you're a veteran, when you have experience, you start to trust your experience more than you trust the power of God. And I think what started to happen is that's what they were doing. They were like, be gone. Nothing. Be gone. Nothing. And Jesus says to them, Guys, this kind can only come out by prayer. People have read this and put the emphasis on the wrong kind. They emphasize the words, this kind. They said, oh, I see what's going on here. There's a taxonomy of demons. Let's classify them. Certain demons come out through words. Certain demons come out through candy or through essential oils. Come on. I've seen entire essays written on the taxonomy of demons categorized and organized. Where are you getting all this stuff? That's not where Jesus was putting the emphasis. The whole context says the emphasis belongs in only by prayer. The error of his disciples is not that they misidentified the type of demon they were dealing with, but they tried to cast out a demon without prayer. That at some point they started relying on their own experience and not absolutely relying on the power of God. They were depending on what worked, not who worked in the past. I think every one of us has done that. There's a direct, here's how I'll end. There's a direct correlation between a church's commitment to prayer and the frequency, frequency with which we experience regularly manifestations and expressions of the real power of God. I'm going to say that again. There is a direct, undeniable correlation between a church's commitment to prayer and the frequency with which we experience and witness the undeniable power of God in our midst. In the early years of our church, 
we were a very praying church. Back in the late 90s when we were getting started, I remember Thursday nights, every Thursday night, about 50% of the church had fasted the whole day. Thursday was fasting day. I still have this triggered association with Thursdays and hunger because for so much of my life, I fasted on Thursdays. And then we would gather at the church, and there was a big stage at AFC where we first met, a big red carpeted stage area, and about 30 to 35 of us every Thursday would sit around, and I'd share briefly from God's word, and we'd just pray for our church and for one another. And it would go for about two, two and a half hours. This was more than 50% of the church at that time. That's an incredible ratio if you think about it. And in response to that kind of prayer, and it's not just like we were doing the work of prayer, it was prayer that signaled that our dependence is on God and what he will do among us. In response to that prayer, God began to move at this church. I believe there has always remained a faithful remnant that has prayed for this church. It's what has carried us by God's grace to where we are today. I remember in 2000, after I had that supernatural experience, And the effect it had on me was so transforming in my inner being that I wanted to share that experience with others. So I had this weird idea. Let me call anyone in our church who wants to have a spiritual breakthrough for one month. Let's just chase hard after God. So I came up with this crazy idea called Breakthrough 2000. Any of you around long enough to remember Breakthrough 2000? (laughs) I even made sure. Do you remember this whole thing? Here's what we said. For the month of August 2000... We're all going to say to God, we hunger for you. We want to experience more of you. So we will all regularly fast at 6 a.m. every single day. We will drive out to the church building and we will spend the first hour of the day praying together to God and for one another. We will memorize scripture. We will tell God over and over, you are real. We long to see you work. Please bring breakthrough in my life in my, my career, my marriage, our church, my health, just bring breakthrough, more of you. And I was shocked when like 40 people signed up to do this and showed up the whole month. Those are some of the sweetest memories for me, looking back in the early roots of our church. How many people actually did experience breakthrough during that season of their lives? I can't guarantee that every time you petition God in this way, he will break through But I know that if we never do, we're lucky if he shows up. Because I think God wants to show up, but he really wants to know, do you want him to show up? Is this a church we're building, or is this church that he's building? And I think it's in prayer that we signal which of those two things is the real answer. I truly believe that God is stirring up something at this church. Every time I'm with the capital campaign team, every time I'm with the elder board, often when I'm just in one-on-one conversations, I'm beginning to hear the stirrings, the rumblings, that God is stirring up the water at this church. He wants to bring to us a new season of renewal, revival, of real life. And because I sense that it's coming, I just can keep hearing it from people. God's doing something. He's convicting me of something. He wants more for us. I truly believe that with all my heart. And so my call to us, my invitation to each of you, is pause this week and think about your own prayer commitment. I'm not just talking about grinding work of prayer. I'm talking about the extent to which you truly believe that God is the only source of power for our lives.
Let's renew our commitment to prayer. If you can, join us when we come together as a church to pray. It happens Tuesday nights. It happens once a month on Saturday nights. It's a really rich time for those who gather. You are always invited to join us for that. When you meet with friends, when you gather with your small group, don't just launch into chit-chat. Pause to say, can we bring ourselves before God and ask him to work among us, to show his power? As praise team comes up, I want to ask you a question. Do you need, do you want to see and experience some of the things that are being described here? I know the answer to that because many of you have told me, I do want to. I just haven't yet. I've asked before. Nothing's happened. I, I totally get that. I didn't experience a supernatural healing in my life until I was in my late 40s. But I prayed really hard for lots of things in the years before that. I don't know why God made me wait so long. And I knew he was real even before that. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't like only when I got healed, God became real. But that experience did something inside of me that was permanent. It changed the way I pray. I long for every person here to have an experience like that. And for some of us, we absolutely need it because we've been dragging ourselves out here for years waiting for something real. I'm telling you, that's what God wants to give you. Would you please hold out hope that he is going to meet you in some real way if you continue to kneel before him and wait? I don't know how he'll do it, but I know that he wants to. Why don't you take a moment wherever you find yourself this morning, something's stirring inside you, say it to God. Just say it. Ask Him for something. Say something that you need to say to Him. There are some amazing seasons in the history of our church where God moved powerfully. But Harvest, do you believe that our very best days with God are still ahead of us? He's going to be doing some things in your lifetime that will blow your mind. He has such a desire 
to move in this world and to use our church. Can we make ourselves available to him? Let's not even ask him to pour his power through us. Let's just ask him to show his power. It doesn't have to go through us at all. Let's just ask God to show up in this world. Be real, be visible, God. Come, Lord Jesus, in power undeniable. Show yourself through this church. Show yourself in this church. What is impossible for the human heart, what is impossible for science and physics, show us your power in this place. Do what only you can do. That's our prayer, God. We've seen what we can do, and it is beautiful. It reflects you. We also now pray that we would see what only you can do. Come to this church, especially those whose souls desperately need to experience an encounter with you. And just like you did on that mountain for Peter, James, and John, peel back the curtain. And just for a moment, show your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.